welcome back to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that definitively and definitely signed the Kyoto Accords in the 2000s. We had to go back and check the archives. We double-checked just to ensure that we were signatory <laughs> members. We definitely were. We believed in it then, believe in it now. Just wanted to get that out there, Amanda. For sure, yeah. Didn't hold back, aren't trying to you know bluff or pull any power moves international power moves power grabs we are on board with the kyoto accords aren't isn't it paris now that's the updated version yeah i think paris yeah either way there was the montreal protocol there's been a a lot of cities have been (laughs) you know these protocols (laughs) as the un has tried over the years we're really making gestures i don't know if we're making progress but the gestures (laughs) We are really trying to make gestures. (laughs) If you have no idea why we're joking about the end of planet Earth, that is because today is a book club episode, specifically a part two book club on a climate change book, kind of a series of articles called Field Notes from a Catastrophe by Elizabeth Colbert. Oh, shoot. See, I forgot and didn't look it up this time. I think it is Colbert. Yeah, I looked it up last time. checked it last time. There we go. Yes, we are, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. We have Instagram and Uh, Facebook, I was going to say Twitter accounts, we don't have a Twitter, but we have an Instagram and Facebook accounts where you can keep up with what we're reading and what we've been posting. One of these weeks, soon, Amanda, I will, this is just going to be an ongoing joke now, but I will be caught up soon with the Instagram (laughs) posts, I promise, to no one, to the universe, (laughs) to you, dear listeners. But follow us at those accounts just to, again, keep up with what we're reading and the current reads we're putting up and posting. This is a book club episode, and it's part two, as I mentioned, so we already covered the first half of Field Notes from a Catastrophe. That podcast is in the feed, so if you're curious how you stumbled upon this without hearing part one, hey, just go click back and check out part one, or even the book recommendation is also up in the feed, of course. We always do a book recommendation before starting any book club or reading endeavor. Our book club episodes are spoiler-filled and analytical in nature, so we will be discussing the entirety of this book at this point, mostly the second half, which I believe is after chapter seven or eight but at this point the whole book is fair game for discussion and for quoting etc etc and i think with that amanda we are ready to begin you feeling ready i'm ready excellent you've got your igloo warmed up i do i mean i can't avoid it right (laughs) (laughs) well yeah i suppose that's true your insulation is we've baked in our own insulation at this point we've insulated the earth Anyway, we will begin part two of this book club with cocktail party quotes. This is a simple segment we do for nonfiction books where we each give a quote, or a few quotes actually, that we think would make for interesting follow-up discussion, perhaps at a cocktail party with some strangers, perhaps not. I don't know in this post-ish COVID time if you want to be talking about climate change with strangers you just met at a party, but I'll leave it up to you, listener. You can <laughs> you can bring up whatever casual social topics you feel are important uh, to the scenario that you're in or the situation. Amanda, why don't you start us off with a updated cocktail party quote? Sure. Um, I pulled one from page 180. It says, the hazard of looking objectively at global warming can be almost as great as refusing to see the problem at all. And I thought this was really an important point because not only is it not helpful to just like straight up ignore, obviously, that climate change is, you know, happening everywhere around us Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it's also important to keep optimism and hope because without that then you are stuck in this like well if nothing's going to change like why should i change it like this despair is just as bad as being blind to it or to ignore it Mm -hmm. um so i think that's a really important message that she tries to convey especially when we look at um 
the examples that she puts in of other um, places that are trying to, in their small ways, trying to make a change, like the Burlington, Vermont um, right, uh, right. information, and then um, the Netherlands. and The 2000 kilowatt lifestyle, or is it kilowatt exactly. something? Yeah, something like that. So I, I thought that that was a really important message that we need to keep in mind as well. Yeah, I think, what do you think the tone of the book is? Is it clear-eyed and depressed? Is it, I think clear-eyed is the, is one half of it for sure. If we want to use yeah. an old, you know, one-two combo tone description or something, a one-two yeah. punch. But it's, I don't know, it's definitely not cynical or pessimistic. I guess clear-eyed and cautious or something how did you feel about like it like urgent i felt like it was urgent oh, yeah. but not to the point of being like nothing can be done now it's urgent in that if we act now we can still do something so yeah, there's still like yeah. a streak of optimism there even though the situation is so dire yeah you do reach a point on the the graph of urgency where if you become if it becomes so urgent or dire you just fall all the way back down to despair or fatalism where it's just like well i guess we just live this out and hope that it you know our ancestors have gills or something or yeah. <laughs> ancestors sorry are <laughs> is it forebears whatever our descendants will have, there it is descendants will have gills no i you know water world no it's i think i think she's right right tone i don't know i know this is jumping ahead to the essay portion you asked me which parts in the f final third section, which was a new addition to the book, were the most necessary. And I do think those that example at the end with the island and some of the alternate lifestyles, I think ending that way does feel right because there aren't many authors or journalists, I guess she is a journalist by trade, who really want to portray it as, here's all these facts, none of it's good, or at least none of it's good if you want the world to be like it's been for the past I don't know, 100,000 years or, you know, longer. Uh, we're, we're entering some other earth. But here's some things that can be done or here's some reasonable, you know, I feel like that's always the tone to strike. I will give a shout out to a book called The Uninhabitable Earth that I read, um, which is basically a rundown of worst case scenarios that could be compounding one another and can intersect. If you are either curious about other scenarios uh, or how they could play out if combined in certain ways, or if you're just, you know, if you like the doom, I would say that is a different book with a different tone and a slightly different project. It's also though pretty fair, but it's yeah. Anyway, I think this one comes off as, I don't know. I didn't feel hopeful by the end, but also she is, she does give those inroads and does give attempts to show possibility mm -hmm. yeah. open to possibility. Okay. Let me pull a quote. That's somewhat connected to that. I've got a cocktail party hit uh, quote. Oops pulled up here this is from 187 it is a quote about luck she says um this is actually from a q a in a british magazine it says to refuse to act on the grounds that still more study is needed or that meaningful efforts are too costly or that they impose an unfair burden on industrialized nations is not to put off the consequences but to rush toward them that's a crucial quote the british magazine new scientist recently ran a global warming q a which ended with the question how worried should we be and the answer was another question how lucky do you feel which feels like a, as good of a taunt I don't know. Scientists aren't known for their sick rhetorical burns, but I think that's about as good and kind of casual as a science quote burn as you're going to get. It's yeah. certainly taunting, you know, literally taunting, and it does feel pretty harsh. But I think the the one takeaway from this book that or the, the message this book reiterated to me was in the other quote from before, which is that you would think that 
these things are exponential and compounding, I guess. And so when you think you're doing maybe neutral moves, you're actually accelerating things and you're making it right. worse. And that's, mm-hmm. that is a crucial fact to take away from this. And it's an important reminder, even for people, I assume for you, frankly, we've never really talked about this topic before, but I'm assuming you're at least moderately educated about it. Who knows? I've never, again, you and I have never talked about global warming, I don't think, before this book study or book club. Yeah. But it's for yeah. people who are even modestly in the know, you know, just read news headlines and keep up with some basic facts. I don't think any of the facts in here would shock on their own, but it, there are some crucial kind of thematic reminders, and I thought that was one of them. I think that's a great point is... um yeah, it's also I, I I do like the way that she handles science and, and the scientists in this book. This is just another example of how we we can often think of scientists as like being stuffy and like like very cerebral. But the analogies and, and that quote that you, you chose about how lucky do you feel, it, it shows the, the human side of scientists. And I think she does a really good job of that mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in this as well, which makes the science more palatable i think yeah and i really thought on the whole that she would hand over i thought she would indulge a little bit more with their personal lives with their backstories and it's really not it's very light she does go through the effort though to pull quotes from them and interview them in a way that does it draws the humanity out i actually thought it would be more heavy-handed than it was Mm -hmm. yeah but on the whole i would say it's pretty subtle there's another quote i'll say from that page i'm not going to read it but just a summary because again i thought the ending of that chapter was uh, especially important but it essentially talks about how one easy and obvious counter to global warming kind of, I don't know, panic or worry would be to say, well, people, we're resourceful and we've never had more tech available to us. Like we will figure some you know solutions out to some things and we have a tendency to survive. That just always feels naive. It's humans aren't that old, especially the ones we currently have. We're just not like in a geologic scale. We're just not that old. So it just feels like a very naive position to think, well, humans can innovate their way out or they will definitely be resourceful and crafty. Like we haven't earned a place on this earth that's like millions of years old. (laughs) In our current form, we've been around for like maybe 10,000, debatably 10 to 15 or 20,000 years. Uh, And even with civilization and societies as they are less. So it just, I just think that perspective, now I don't know, sometimes it hurts to hear that perspective or some people don't want to think in those terms, but certainly, and this is crucial too, the scientists think in those terms. That's how they measure change. That's how they measure things like climate. And so they, they are the ones with the broad view so if, if you right. find yourself with a more microscopic view i could see putting the blinders on but i thought the end of that chapter was pretty was kind of tough in that way i suppose and, and that's a good point to bring up too because she makes the point um i think earlier in the book about um we we look down on like uh simple organisms um, but those are the ones that are the most resilient and that have been around for the longest time oh, so yeah. she's like who's going to survive this those simple organisms for sure so if we consider ourselves like the most complex ugh. <laughs> like yeah yeah we see other creatures that were simpler than us but not the simplest that did not survive all these changes so right you know the indication is that you know we we probably won't make it <laughs> we are definitely we resourceful but also that demands certain resources and certain conditions and everything and we have a mm-hmm. a much pickier sense of what fits you know a survivable scenario survivable climate survivable earth and yeah cockroaches i mean they can digest poop they're not they're never gonna lose 
<laughs> they can break down they can eat i think any but i forgot what fact i read about cockroaches they can digest though basically any thing <laughs> any organic thing almost it's some ludicrous amount of stuff that they can feast upon so like goats <laughs> oh yeah I, I even mean like dirt or something they can eat it's some they have some remarkably weird range of anyway this is what makes them survivable any other quotes you want to throw out there updated um, yeah, I've got another one from page 199, um, and it's a quote within a quote. <laughs> so, um, what you believe about climate changes doesn't reflect what you know, said Dan Cahan, a professor at Yale Law School who studies risk perception. It expresses who you are. So I thought that was important because it kind of, one of the aspects of this book is that she, she discusses um, some of the politics that are involved in global warming and uh, some of the reasons for why the United States hasn't joined in any of these protocols is, is politics and economic gains. Um, and so this quote shows that like what you say or read or believe about global um, global warming is mm. actually related to like an identity, some, some part of who you are, whether it's Republican or conservative or liberal or progressive or Democrat or whatever. It's, it's a part of your identity. And I think it's often related to your political identity. Yeah. Isn't the study he pulls after that, doesn't it show demonstrably that the percentages don't line up? Like when you ask people yeah. to prove the science, the people who believe in global warming actually can't prove or they don't actually understand the science better than people who don't believe in it. So it's, it, that's yeah. the disconnect that they're showing is that it's become so wrapped up in political identity issues, which is why, I don't know, I, I admire the project of this book and I understand it's a half and half book, right? It's half of it is science here. Let me help you understand complex science. But the other half was here is how people are dealing with this. There's definitely a psychological and certainly political governmental component to this, a massive one. Mm -hmm. And I almost feel like that's the book I'd rather read. How do you persuade people? How do we motivate people? It's because the science is in. I don't that I actually pulled the quote from 199 too. Let me also uh, read mine. It's just above yours. This is a quote from Ed Maybach. The single most common myth about climate change among Americans is that there's a lot of disagreement among the experts, who said Ed Maybach, he's a uh, leader at a university. And the reason why they think there must be a lot of disagreement among the experts is because there was an intentional strategy to sow the seeds of doubt. And then, you know, from certain moneyed interest uh, over the past, last few decades, dozens of scientific seeming reports have purported to show there's no scientific consensus on climate change, even though the basic geophysics have been understood since Arrhenius, which I think is you know, it's like hundreds of years ago, if not longer. I think this is the frustration. This was when I did my little, you know, 101 level college survey course on climate change. This became apparent extremely quickly, which is that because scientific topics this book lays this out well too i think this is another good project the book accomplished which is that science is pretty diverse and vast when you get up to those expert levels and it's hard to get those people who are siloed away to fully agree on anything ever especially when the interdisciplinary stuff can be hard to hard to connect like there was a tundra scientist but then also there was a scientist who just studied butterflies like it's how do you get those people mm -hmm. to ever talk to each other you know it's they're doing right. pretty different things and so what that means is that 
if you want to, you can kind of not manipulate things, but you can poke at little little things to make it seem like there's no, this can't be happening. Look at all this little stuff, or you know, look at right. this one little minute micro study on this micro thing and this tiny tiny topic. Ooh, look, let's zoom in all the way and see. It's you know that it, that isn't conclusive, so therefore nothing is conclusive. But it's. I don't know we I, that we haven't gotten over this fact yet that it doesn't seem like consensus to people yet is stunning because it's it's been consensus for a long time and it's yeah I don't know I mean people seem to in an unironic way believe that the earth is flat and I just don't know how this would marry with that in terms of convincing people and trying to talk them through the science but I thought this passage was important because it is I don't think you could you wouldn't have to throw a rock very far from the place you're living in if you're in the states to hit somebody who would that would be probably one of the first things they would say which is that, oh, it's, I heard, well, maybe it's, or, you know, I saw that this study disproved this other thing, or I saw that this might not actually be true, but it's not, you know, it's just because at that levels of science, there's so much micro stuff, there's so much minutia, it, the right. points can get buried, and the messaging has just been atrocious. The messaging's been atrocious here for 50 years, or, you know, 40 yeah. years. So I found that quote important. Yeah, I agree. And, just like with uh, the flat earthers and, and other people, like the the thing is, is um, I've I had heard some interviews with with people who legit think that the Earth is flat, and that the biggest reason that I heard um, from these interviews is is because they have not seen it with their own eyes. So right, with right. climate change as well, which is something that Colbert brings up um, at the beginning of the book we don't see we don't directly see a lot of these changes right unless we're in the science community or if we're living in the extremes um in the arctic and stuff like that which is right they're right. remote for a reason <laughs> um <clears throat> so because we're not we're not personally seeing these things we're not personally feeling these things it's harder for some people to believe um, yeah. because they they're, they're just they're just those types of people yeah yeah. And it's and even the people who are crying I don't know if the crying wolf is the right analogy, who claim that it's a significant severe problem, we should deal with it urgently, all that. They'll they'll most of them will be dead too by the time it is yeah. by the time the first, let's say, mass migration event occurs. Well by the time, let's say, one country presumably along the equator somewhere falls into complete societal collapse and like literally causes a migration of let's say 10 to 20 million people like that's we'll probably be dead by the time that happens though maybe not honestly i mean because that could be in the 2050s or 60s depending on certain outcomes so it's just yeah i don't i mean there's not it's a lobster in a in a, in a boiling pot scenario with us we're like we got put into the pot when it was cold and it's boiling so i just <laughs> i don't know how you're gonna alert people to that when when all they remember was the cold water or something I don't know if that's the right analogy either. But, yeah, I thought that quote was pretty important, too. Did you have any other cocktail party quotes to share? Uh, nope, that was, that was all mine. You know, I had one other one that was from an economic research report, but I'm actually going to use it in the essays anyway, so I'm going to save that nice. one. <laughs> I'm going to withhold nice. and just, well, you know, put it in the back burner. Sounds good. <laughs> Excellent. I'm surprised. So neither of us pulled a quote from the chapter about the ocean acidifying. <laughs> I thought that was probably yeah. the most dense one. I don't know. That was a tough read <laughs> yeah. for me. I just didn't connect in that one. Yeah, I understood that it was uh, an important aspect, especially because in, in that article, she, she does kind of touch on the idea of our, our supply chain, especially because, you know, we get a lot of obviously like our nutrition comes from the ocean. <clears throat> yeah, right. Especially like 
fish, but and then also she touches on the idea of the economy um, and how ocean acidification, which is a result of or, um, which climate change has um, a part in, right. so economy is being affected. So that is when po- politically they're saying like, oh, the economy is more important or whatever. It's like, well, but this is also affecting the economy negatively. So yeah. Um, anyway, so I, I thought it was an important chapter, but I. The, the quotes weren't as, I think, broad and, and like, it, it was super about the, just the ocean. So <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's harder to pull stuff from. <laughs> totally. Yeah. It's, it's just another microcosm problem of not seeing the results fast enough to combat it and then having it right. be too late by the time severe consequences are shown and demonstrable and everything. Right. Just another example of that same, of the climate system being vast interconnected and hard to budge hard to nudge i guess mm-hmm. and so it's yeah anyway all right let's move into the imaginary essays then let's see what kind of bleak talk we can drag out of this one <laughs> <laughs> yours i hope will not be i tried to make mine purposefully not bleak anyway uh, the imaginary essay is kind of the last analytical thing amanda and i do with the book which is we each give each other an essay prompt that the other person prepares for we don't actually write the essays of course that would take too much time and effort we just plan an outline for it talk through the topic and try and analyze the book in that way. I'll throw mine to you first, Amanda, because like I said, it's at least, I don't know, slightly hopeful, (laughs) I thought. I thought that the project of this question was maybe obvious, but that's okay, I'm going with an obvious pick this week, which is imagine that you are now going to give this book, gift it away to a climate skeptic, which I don't know if you have those people in your life, just don't tell me who they are, but maybe this could be a real prompt, maybe not. (laughs) If not, imagine. but let's say, surprise, they don't like reading or don't want to, so you can only pick three chapters. Which chapter should you pick from this book and why? Consider it like a crash course for them, or imagine that they had to read them, because obviously there's plenty of climate skeptics that would not engage or would immediately dismiss this or whatever, but let's pretend right. that they have to read three chapters and you are in control of the syllabus. Go take it away. Uh, so I would include... Um, chapter one for sure, which was the Shishmaref Alaska. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so for that one, the reason I would include that one is that it's it's it shows how approachable she is as a writer. Um, so mm-hmm. you might be intimidated by the idea of the science, but actually the way that she presents the science is really palatable. So uh, this one I think was a great chapter to kind of show that um, there is an explanation of why we may not immediately see the effects of climate change, which is an important thing for for some people. Like I I can't see it, therefore it's not happening. So the explanation for why we're not directly seeing it. Um, is is there and i think that's an important one um there's also a rebuttal to the idea of natural changes um versus like these expedited changes that are occurring um so there's a bit of a rebuttal there which is nice um uh, there's explanations of real though remote changes occurring so that's when she um discusses glaciers, especially in Greenland, um, the idea of permafrost, and she talks to the scientists with that, and disappearing islands and island storms, um, which is Shishmaref, Alaska, and other examples of like what's happening in real time to these people, but they are not us because we're in mainland, you know, nice warm United States, so we're not seeing these things, but they are happening. Mm-hmm. 
And um, she also includes some really good analogies given by actual scientists about the ramifications of their findings. So it's not just the findings and then drop and walk away, but explaining how those findings are going to <clears throat> affect the rest of the world. So <clears throat> that's why mm -hmm. that chapter, I think, was really important. And the uh, tundra, and one that I, would include. I think, is a pretty... Yeah. I'd never actually... I don't think I knew about the facts and kind of the science of tundra and how it kind of can reliably show climate stuff differently. And, I mean, I knew what tundra was, that it was fro permanently frozen or somewhat permanently frozen. But anyway, right. yeah, I think it's an interesting but solid pick for an opener because it's a little unexpected. And once you know kind of the basics of tundra and how it shows climate, it's pretty a pretty compelling first case. Yeah. And, and that also affected, like, with the permafrost um, melting, um, especially in Alaska, and how, like, houses are disappearing and stuff like that because mm -hmm. the permafrost is, yeah. is is creating these, like, giant holes in the middle of the city. Um, <clears throat> that also shows, like, the effect on, on people's actual living and, and their state of living. So, um and the next chapter I would include would be chapter five, which is the curse of Akkad, um, which was a, a just generally, I think, a really great chapter. Um, but it shows historical evidence of how climate change affects society and culture. So the, uh, she talks about the one city that's um, that was like not a huge city, but it was like a pretty good sized city for that time. Mm -hmm. And um, then all of a sudden everybody disappeared. Like people just left. Um, and it's because of drought, which was um, tied to extreme weather and stuff like that. So there's actual historical evidence of how um, sudden and severe changes in, in weather can negatively impact a culture. There's also comparisons between uh, the previous climate shifts to current right. climate change. So she makes the distinction between a shift in the climate versus what's happening now, which is the, the change. So it's about the man-made aspect of that and how it's, it is different. Right. Um, there's also an explanation of how the last glacial maximum differs from what's happening now. Um, so again, looking at history in order to explain the differences between what is naturally occurring versus what is like accelerated um, right, during our right. time. Um, there's also an introduction to how politics is a major component of climate change discussion, which is an important one for the next chapter that I would include. And then there's some predictions of what will happen if changes go unchecked, where they're ta uh, she talks about war, there's uh, the supply chain, there's drought and other things. So it's, it's going to be a huge effect on humanity in, in all aspects, not just right. our discomfort, general discomfort. Mm -hmm. um, so that's chapter five. And the final chapter that I would include is actually chapter eight, the day after Kyoto. Okay. So this this chapter, I felt, was the one that most directly challenges climate change naysayers. There's a lot more of, like, discussion of what she calls um, the propaganda from that side of, um, from that side. So I thought that would be the most compelling uh, for somebody if I were to give this book to somebody who does not believe in climate change. Um, so there's uh, the actual reasoning of the United States reasons for rejecting involvement in a lot of international climate change initiatives, which reading that chapter, you're like, oh, right. 
it's because of economy and we still want to be top dog and we don't want to be restricted in how much coal we use and right we don't want to invest in new technologies um, and stuff like that um, there, it questions whether climate change or U.S. economy is more important. And that is a question that she she keeps uh, kind of coming back to is like, what is more important here? Is you say, well, the, the politicians say that it's important. Climate change is important if they even ag- agree that it's, you know, happening, which some politicians don't. Um, but the, if, if they do agree that, it, yeah, it's something that we need to, to address why hasn't it been addressed? Well, our economy. So which is more important? Like, you know, lives or money? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there's that. And there's also, um, she includes some of the sources of the anti-global warming sentiment, which when she provides the uh, some of the sources that politicians are quoting, um, it, a lot of it is funded by, hey, big oil companies, weird. Um, so she talks about, she gives some evidence of that. And she also um, really tries to focus in on why it is important specifically for America to get involved with these protocols because we are the largest producer of carbon right, dioxide. Right. So, and a per person so really basis, too, by far. Yeah. Definitely. So that's that's what I would include. Excellent. Those are solid picks. I was surprised no inclusion of the ho- most hopeful then, the island in the wind. Little <laughs> cute little farming community, you know? Bunch of curmudgeons that got turned into, I guess, wind farmers. <laughs> yeah, I, and it's great, but I feel like if you give that to a skeptic, they're going to be like, those hippies. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. I was glad she picked a real sort of boots on the ground kind of indifferent just pretty typical not soft-spoken what's the word i'm looking for not curt just sort of like very um speaks very briefly you know isn't very verbose or anything just kind of keeps it to the point and i think he the first thing she quotes not the first but she immediately says to him or has him say is like we're just normal people or we're not special right or something like that right you know, these things just happened over time, and once this, once it picked up momentum, it kept going. So, mm-hmm. excellent. Okay, and the political ones, yeah, that's the big risk, right? It's like we have to discuss it in those terms, but also because, like you quoted earlier, it's so wrapped up with political identities now and defending right. something that even even if the science doesn't agree or agrees with you, you just take a it's all side picking in a sense. That right. those are tough, but that that has to be included. It's I don't it think the historical record will look favorably on any presidential administration on this issue so far. But I yeah I don't think the, there's not been one administration that made it a cornerstone and really pushed forward with anything meaningful. Some some small yeah. things here and there, and of course we have signed international stuff under other presidents other than Bush. But we there's doesn't mean we've hit those targets. Right. And done anything domestically of, of huge note. So, right. Okay. Well said. Uh, do you want to toss yours at me then? I'll take it away. Yeah. Uh, Colbert wrote part three after the first two parts came out as a book, mm-hmm. and she wrote them as articles for the New Yorker. What value do these three chapters articles add to the book, if at all? Are these chapters necessary to complete the book for you? I think so. There's two things to say. In the, in the most basic sense, it's completely necessary because since 2006, our 
general public attitude and societal outlook, though we haven't made much significant progress, like I think the general acceptance of the science, we're just kind of inundated with climate facts. It's also in our face these days in, in more literal ways and more frequent ways. There's more, more protests about it, more global movement. I think just more attention and everything. So I think it's completely, you have to update this. Otherwise it will just read as an odd relic. So short answer would be yes. Um, each one kind of has its role to play in, in terms of being added. There were some that I thought were more interesting or essential than others. Of course, there were four total. I'm going to run through each of them and designate it with an award or kind of a purpose for why I think it was included. And I'll, you know, run through them one at a time. We'll see what you think. The first one that was added, 10 Years On is the name of it. I'm going to give this the Sad But True Award for Political Pessimism. It's a necessary check on the political system. It's a necessary look at our domestic politics since it was published. And she does throw a new bit of science in there. But it's it's really just a reminder of political gridlock. I think of all the additions, this one was actually the least essential in a weird way. Though it's, again, it's such a political issue and has become one that you can't not update people to say, here's in general how we've responded, here are steps that have been taken or not taken. But there's really nothing to say. It's the, we're caught in the same catch-22. We're in the same dilemma of choosing short-term, short-term economic strife over long-term catastrophe. Not even short-term strife, short-term discomfort for over long-term catastrophe. Like it's, we're caught in the same thing and haven't made a lot of progress. And so on the last page, um, she says, what we choose to do or not to do in the coming decades will determine the future for both our own kind and for millions of other species with whom we share this planet. It is possible that we could still limit warming to around two degrees Celsius and then or we could go above six degrees. These two possibilities represent radically different worlds. So, yeah, it's a it's well said. It's a decent chapter, just kind of updating and summarizing. But I don't think it real revealed anything new or anything vital. It was just kind of a welcome update. That's how I felt. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on that chapter? Yeah, that chapter uh, I think was really useful in helping me to understand why she included the other chapters because she she states her purpose. So I thought that was really useful as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I enjoyed the check in, and it was also pretty brief. The next chapter added was the Darkening Sea. I'm going to give this the Too Long Didn't Read Award for Tough Science. (laughs) I think the topic's fascinating, and frankly, it's way more important than Tundra, because the ocean is, I think, what, 75% of our world? And most of, like, there are certain, I forget what the percentage is, but there's a certain huge number of percentage of humanity that gets their nutrients from fish and, like, other ocean sources, so... Yeah, it's a pretty vital part of our food system, if not maybe the most vital part. And so there's just the technicalities of the science and the acidification facts and all that. I think it just went on too long was what got to me. She mentions, for example, let me just quote just from part of a page on 218. Under all four acidification scenarios, by the end of the century, the waters around Antarctica will become undersaturated with respect to argonite, the form of calcium carbonate produced by pertopods and corals. When water becomes undersaturated, it is corrosive to shells. Meanwhile, surface pH will drop by another 0.2, bringing acidity to roughly double what it was in pre-industrial times. To look further out into the future, and then she goes on more modeling. It's just maybe a bit too much science, though that, to be fair, that quote, now that I read it back, is in line with the rest of the book. I wouldn't say it comes out of nowhere, the the density of things. But I think it just, then again, it, it does include her signature writing of doing pretty clear and sort of human history comparisons for people to latch onto, because she compares it to pre-industrial times. And so that, I think, saves it a little bit. But it's, 
it's a lot of that. It takes a while to build up her point um, about how this is worrisome and what the trend is. And maybe there was one too many scientists in it or something for me. Maybe there was just one too many sort of experiments. Yeah, experiments included. It was like two for, or three different yeah. things going on. There. I admire the thoroughness for, for certain. And it, this would make for a long, a good long New Yorker feature. But yeah, in terms of a chapter, I would cut this one back just ever so slightly. And so. Yeah, it's more technical and I think essential, but I don't know. This one did not grip me at all. What did you think? Um, <clears throat> yeah, this one took me a lot longer to get through, this particular chapter. The other ones I was, like, breezing through. Um, but this one I definitely had to, like, put the book down and, like, kind of take a break um, mm-hmm. a couple of times. Because, like, she mentioned in one of the previous chapters, like, that acidification is related to... Um, global warming and then this chapter she's like really drilling down on that but she doesn't make that connection until much later in this article Mm -hmm. Um, so with that purpose in mind it's like it's almost a a shift almost in in what you're reading in a way because you've been reading this whole book and the, the focus is on climate change but then in this chapter you don't get to the implications the 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 relationship to climate change until like the end of the chapter. So you're just mm-hmm. like waiting for that connection that whole time, which I think totally fatigues my mind. <laughs> no, for I sure. That. <laughs> I pulled one more quote from it on 228 because she does do the thing where she provokes, I hope not provokes literally, but she inspires a scientist to say a memorable quote. And the quote here from him is, he went on, this is a matter of the utmost importance. I can't really stress it in words strong enough. It's a do or die situation. He means for the coral and then for those ecosystems. Like potentially, he said conservatively a million species use coral reefs which I knew it was high, but seeing that conservative number is still alarming anyway. But yeah, I think a nice addition, it didn't put me off or anything. And by the time, by the time you're deep, this deep in the book, you're kind of just on board, I assume for whatever topic she thinks is important, (laughs) but yeah, it doesn't, um, it did not grip me like some of the other ones did. And so the final two, um, second to last, was called Unconventional Crude, meaning crude oil. I'm going to call this, I'm going to give this rather the Enemy at the Gates Award for kind of spying. (laughs) This was the first time that she directly went to a place that is rampantly contributing to global warming. Most of the people she meets with and interacts with in the book are scientists who either are trying to combat it or trying to understand it. Now, the exception to that would be when she meets with the Bush era officials, including the woman who is like a talking doll robot person who repeats the same. That was that was an alarming. (laughs) I was amazed when I look back that I didn't pull that for a quote because it was such a creepy scene from some kind of dystopian political movie of a person just spouting. You know, it's like she's like a broken PR person just repeating this, not answering questions directly and instead just reciting some kind of practice party line. Yeah, it was Mm. pretty frightening and in a different context would be hilarious in this context context was just depressing and a little sad and so other than that though this is the most direct interaction she has with a an entity in this case oil companies that would be you know we can all take our percent of the blame pie but i'll can assure you that my percent is smaller than oil companies percents (laughs) (laughs) Uh, in terms of you know in a hundred years when when blame is to be needed out for this i'm pretty sure my slice of the pie will be uh profoundly smaller anyway so i thought this was a pretty interesting um section i enjoyed on 240 there was a quote where the guy who's zandy was his name uh, he's kind of he's kind of bragging. I don't know if uh, do you think they understood why she was there? 
I I don't think so. No, me neither. I, I feel like yeah. she may have lied. <laughs> or just said something broad like, I'm just a journalist. I'm trying to do a piece about oil or the environment. Right. Or, yeah. We're just trying to learn just, more about what crude oil is. <laughs> yeah. Ju- the thing that they say here, just as an example on 240, um, is Andy said to lift one of the teeth of this truck would require 30 men. That gives you a sense of the scale. A gargantuan truck rumbled by. Zandy estimated that it was carrying about 300 tons of this product. That's some of our smaller equipment, he said. The largest truck in the mine, the Caterpillar 797B, can haul more than 400 tons. It has 12-foot tall tires, and its cab sits on tw- its cab sits 21 feet off the ground. Driving one, I was told, is like trying to steer a house while peering out the window of the upstairs bathroom. This just reads like a kind of braggadocious interview at someone who's on a, you know, this is a construction site, an industrial site. And I just don't, if she's there to critique the climate, lack of climate efforts, was their move really to show off how much investment and development they've put into making this worse? I mean, he's literally bragging about how impressive our industrialized process has become at making this all worse. That's literally what he's showing off. So I just did, right. I was so baffled by this section, but I found it really fascinating. And it's, of course, you know, it gives some good visuals there. Uh, some of those comparisons, that imagery is just, it'll sit in your mind. And I've certainly never been, I've been in, in industrialized places. I've even worked some factory jobs, but I've never seen equipment at that scale, though in my mind, I, it's like, I know it exists, of course, to do certain jobs. Anyway, so I just thought that whole section was memorable and felt very strange. Like she was kind of just like observing like a ghost or something. She was invisible it's, it's to really, them. It really highlights to the uh, later when she explained that <clears throat> to create, to, to get that crude oil, what is um, what they gain from it is actually just like less than they actually get because there's so much of that oil would have to go back into getting that oil yeah, in the well, first place yeah, and it's with so- those giant... Yep pieces of machinery so yeah when they do the percent i mean the, you know the companies they're not stupid in terms of being companies they they calculate it out very simply it's finally profitable they can have this all this machinery developed that can actually make this profitable and then yeah they do the raw math it's very simple for them they they'll get more out than they put in so they put in you know they'll they'll pay the gas cost to get the gas out or you know to get the oil out because the energy they take will be more than what they is required and now that the right. the equation has shifted that is enough for them to invest in this and build a truck that has 12 foot tires or whatever (laughs) it's just such an odd i don't know it's very strange in a book whose entire project could be leading to the conclusion let's see let's innovate away from this let's desperately and quickly try and put resources into getting out of this these industries and then of course at the end it's hey we've come up with a new way to use oil and here's a massive industrial investment and look at this cool stuff that is just going to make it worse um very and then like at the end they give her toys to give her kids that was another just really surreal moment of just could could they possibly have understood i mean i'm sure they googled her right the book was out by the time she went there I don't right. know. Did they think they just seemed cool? Like, no, no, no. Industrialization of with oil, it's, you know, it might be bad, but it's pretty cool though, right? It's pretty dope. Like, look at all this cool <laughs> shit we made <laughs> to have a toy. Like, I don't, it's just, what an odd section. But yeah, I, to me, essential. Uh, I thought it was very interesting and weird. Um, the final quote I do want to read from that chapter, by the way, I was going to read this earlier. It's just from an economist. 
uh, named Farrell or Farrell. The environment and climate change are what uh, what we call externalities, Farrell continued, and at the moment we don't have effective ways of including these externalities in market transactions of any sort. Until we do, the market won't solve them, since by definition they're external to the market. They're a social good. Government has to step up and say we're going to take this into account. Which, if that quote is not enough proof for anyone out there that the entire discipline of economics is a fraud <laughs> and should be debunked at all in all situations that I don't know what else to say because it's an economist saying this entire thing we've built our entire society seemingly to to revere above all things literally does not account for the conditions of er- the earth or the world it's in <laughs> uh, I did, mm-hmm. if the market what do you mean the mar- it's an external force to the market the market's going to burn to the ground like well, there's there will be no market to do your trading yep. in I don't understand like it's and you know and in a sense he was doing it in a pragmatic he that quote's meant to be actually hopeful or pragmatic saying like step up government that's your end of this equation the the we the economists will run we'll make sure things buy and sell and then you worry about what's good for us and, and monitor us but I just don't think there are many economists out there at least in in the, maybe theorists and all that and academics but in the directly applicable sense or the not applicable sense, in the real world scenario sense, I just don't think there are many people out there saying, no, it's fine, I will sacrifice the profits for the, you know, for the social good. Or like, or right. the, or it's like, you're telling me that these companies are inviting government regulation, that's what you're saying? Like, it's just, I don't know. I just found the quote very frustrating, and I just don't understand what good the market is then. What use is this to us? <laughs> Why is that useful? <laughs> If it doesn't account for this, if the conditions around it, or, you know, if it can't account for these externalities, it seems pretty intrinsic to me that you have to have the resources to exploit the resources. I don't, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, you would Ma- think so. I don't know. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm just not thinking hard enough. You know, they got a lot of graphs uh, and charts. <laughs> so maybe, <laughs> yeah, what an externality indeed. I just, I don't know. I found that very frustrating, but that chapter as a whole, I would say, is a great addition. I did enjoy that one yeah. a lot. So, And I then the, the final chapter added was The Island in the Wind, which I'm going to give the New Hope Award for proper conclusion-dom or proper conclusionality, <laughs> neither of which are words. Uh, despite what the title of the book suggests, which is Field Notes from a Catastrophe, I do think this is, this is the right outro, ultimately. I think this is what people would either want or need. And even someone like me, who's maybe, I think compared to you, as we've revealed, on the more skeptical, maybe fatalist side, it is the right way to end the book, though. Because you have to give people, with some even semblance of an idea, you can't, it's, it'd be tough to say you should inundate them for this many pages and then leave them neutral or just feeling defeated because at that point let's just accelerate this thing into the ground but so to me it is the right ending and i thought it wasn't saccharine or corny or anything it was pretty clear-eyed and level-headed um i think on page 255 let me actually pull this quote because i think this might be maybe the most important or best quote of the book this is from the the farmer um, the residents of Samso that I spoke to were clearly proud of their accomplishment. All the same, they insisted on their ordinariness. They were, they noted, not wealthy, nor were they especially well-educated or idealistic. They weren't even terribly adventuresome. We are a conservative farming community, is, one how, is how one Samsinger put it. We are only normal people, Tranberg told me. We are not some special people. Spoken like a farmer, 
in a, in a true kind of wisdom. <laughs> and I just think that quote combined with 266 and 68, I'm not going to read those quotes, but on 266, they lay out this 2000 watt society program of how to reconfigure your life to not account for as much energy or not take as much up. And then on 268, I think this final quote from Stultz I will read, who kind of it lives that lifestyle. And he says, it's not a miracle, such a building. He's talking about this architecture that doesn't require energy to heat and cool it. Um, we have to have a cup of coffee. It's just putting smart elements together in a smart way. Outside, it was rainy and 43 degrees. Inside, the temperature was a pleasant 70. And just emphasizing that they have managed to kind of innovate this building that doesn't need energy to heat and cool itself in the climate that it's in. All of that, I think, combines at the end to paint not a rosy picture, but at least it gives some realistic examples to, you know, back earlier in the book, they talked about that, the pie wedges plan. Do you remember that graph? Yeah, yeah. And it was sort of, and at that chapter, in that chapter, that man, scientist, whatever researcher who proposed that, he, for each pie chunk, he did say how it could be done, but they were still big ideas. Like he would say, right. we need to build 300,000 wind farms. Like, don't know how or where, but like, that is a way to solve this. We just need to then look at that massive, complicated solution and you know build our way, work our way toward it. This just feels like to me the more practical human version of his vision or something. It just, I would see why you'd want to end with this chapter because it does feel more lived in, more human, a little bit smaller scope. You know, that farming community is plenty charming and interesting and stuff. And I just think some of those quotes at the end showing some practical decision making. But also, I mean, think of it this way. I'll end with this thought. And then I'll and then I'll wrap up my very long essay here. I think that the when the person is quoted from the 2000 Watt Society about how he's or how he and his family have readjusted, it did include things like having to move where they could use a train and not require a car, like picking right. a location to live in intentionally so that there are certain things you cut out of your life and then limiting your vacations on planes. Planes, as it turns out, is one of the quickest ways to overdo your energy consumption like the easiest way to <laughs> kind of surprise <laughs> yeah yeah that takes a special kind of fuel there jet fuel and so yeah it's uh, he i believe the quote is he says it's not belt tightening but it's just a way to rethink it, how you live and i think that's mm. one of the mantras has to be coming out of this book it, it's not going to be without change to fix things it's not there's no of course way we can keep living as we are and then fix it but you just have to reimagine it in a way. You have to just reimagine living your life a slightly different way, I suppose, is what is just all I wanted to say. And I think that in the analytical sense, why that chapter should go there and why she would put it there, it just made sense to end it that way. I think it's what most people would want to know or feel. And and it also kind of shows, too, as far as um, with the town itself, these are farmers. They're not rich but they were still able to right. afford to make these changes. And by making those changes, actually they're saving money in the long run because they're not living on the grid constantly. So there might be some upfront money, but in the end you're actually saving money because right. you're not right. paying as much in electrical. It's your monthly fees go down. Your monthly payments go down. Yeah. And you end up saving money in the long run, which is, uh, we we just got solar panels on our house, and um, mm -hmm. it's already like drastically changed for us as far as like, <clears throat> especially now it's in the fall, so we don't use any air conditioning. It's like we we've 
save so much money mm-hmm. yeah, yeah now that, yeah we paid some money up front but but in the end like we're, we're gonna make out really well financially mm-hmm. with just this one change yeah and there's so yeah it's just a shame because yeah, the it, argument that we can't make these changes because it's too costly yes on a government scale if we try to do like the entire united states yes there is going to be huge up- upfront costs but then not only are we saving energy in the long run, um, but also like we're we're saving money <laughs> right, in the long right. run too. So, yeah, it reminds me of I don't know. I don't want to go in too long a tangent. I'll say this: I was going to go off on a really extreme COVID-related tangent, but let me pull that one back and do this. Say this thought instead. It's it really is the same type of thinking because one kind of not counter I've seen, but people when they talk about alternative energies. They say things like, yeah, well, it's not going to be reliable all year round. There might be 20 days of the year when you can't pull enough or where you can't use your electricity at night. And to that, I can only shrug and say, okay, then, is that the trade-off? Like, we really can't live, let's say it was 10 days a year per person. For some reason, you couldn't pull enough electric. That seems like a pretty nice trade to then save most of the planet or or something like it's at some point we're going to have to look the cost down and somebody's just going to have to say yeah that's not a big deal it's okay like it there was a quote in the book too where they said it would take 1% of the global gdp to implement some like some of the biggest like most massive changes that's the trade off like is this really what we're debating over that's if the trade-off is 1% of the global GDP versus, you know, 500 million people migrating and then the mass death that will result of that in 50 to 70 years, I, what, what is the debate? I just don't the, – yeah. sometimes the terms and the, the arguments, it's – I mean, you could one could say it's, of course, that same logic creeping in again, right? That it's – we can't see it immediately. It's not right away. It's yada, yada. So it's hard to make sacrifices, but – I just, I don't know. I'm not sure what to say to some of those arguments anymore. It's, or when, you know, it's the same energy thing about like, well, yeah, it would be better um, to do go to solar or something or alternatives, but it won't be as convenient. Like what if, you know, it's the classic convenience American mentality of, well, what if you didn't get your electricity when you wanted? What if, what if the government said the three weekends out of the year, you couldn't have it? And it's like, yeah, I don't, at some point, we have to give something up for this to work. I don't like. Th- yeah. Is that sacrifice so profound? Is that such a bad thing? <laughs> uh, it just—I don't know. Some of these arguments get frustrating at this point too. We've yeah. also been stirring this down for at least. I feel like in terms of media consumption, maybe you can tag in because I know I've said this a couple times here. When do you feel like you became really aware of this issue in a clear way? Man, that's a good question. I remember becoming aware of it in, I want to say, middle school when we we were taught oh. about greenhouse gases. Right, right. Um, because I was like, oh, okay. And so that's when I kind of first heard about it. But I didn't have any discussions um, about it until pff, college. I want to say. Right, right. So, yeah, it's like 
it's not something that they necessarily, and I took AP environmental science my senior year in, in high school, but my teacher was like, so, so checked out. <laughs> this is last year. Like, gotcha. he just had us like go outside and like hug trees and told us to watch the clouds. Like that was, yeah. <laughs> that was my class. Fantastic. So. <laughs> and, you know, worship and love the earth while she's around, revere her, <laughs> revere yeah. the earth mother. You know, the yeah. classic things. <laughs> I just feel like for me in my brain, it's been at least a decade probably in high school though is when i first could have probably explained what the issue was or something but that's at least a decade then of just non-stop the same news stories the same studies re- reaffirming the same points the same arguments and i guess politically speaking 10 years in a democratic time scale democracies are slow i don't know it's it's kind of built in i, I suppose so it's 10 years to argue something I guess in the in the grand scheme of political discourse or yada yada, I suppose that fifteen to twenty years one could say because of the Bush years, maybe that's not a profound political timeline or something. But I these seem like crucial years to keep arguing that in for right. this to go on with the same debates and with the same conclusions. Anyway, any final thoughts on that? I know I took I stole the ending of that. No, no, you're good. All right, That's let's it. talk about Lost Pages then. This is the one of the final segments we'll do on the book club when we each talk about something in the text that we thought was missing or just that we wish would have gone on for longer or should have been included. Any scope or scale will work here. Amanda, why don't you start us off with your Lost Pages? Sure. Um, so Colbert kind of addresses some of the opposition, especially in um, Chapter 8, which I talked about. But I'd like to see more of that where she... Um, kind of talks more directly about what the other side believes and like kind of just explaining um, as though like not not to be like you know aggressive about it but to show where those source more where those sources are coming from why those beliefs are faulty and uh, providing you know alternative Uh, responses to those so having more of a rebuttal i think would be really nice especially since in her preface she said that she hoped that the book would affect naysayers as well as people who already believe in global warming Mm -hmm. um so i think that to make it more effective for people who don't believe in it, it you would have to actually address the things that they do believe and that they have heard so i think more of that would be and and also I want to read more about that too, um, and to see how those two perspectives um, challenge each other. So yeah, that would be something interesting that I'd like to read. That as well. that book's got to be out there, the kind of yeah. back and forth version or something. There's, I mean, I'm sure there's a million climate science books at this point, but there, that version must exist. Somebody probably wrote that. Yeah, I will say for my part. Gonna try not to get heated and salty. I thought there was plenty of it. Honestly, she quotes from the famous politicians who fought against it. She could, and it's the same shit that they always say. It's it's yeah. not provable. The science isn't in. You know, it could it couldn't be it could be man made. It might not also be the Earth has been warm before. Like it's the same fucking. There's nothing new or that they say. It's the yeah. <laughs> been saying the same five things for twenty years or and perhaps longer. But I get I totally get you. She definitely does not hand over a chapter to. I don't I don't know who them would be because even the scientists who promote that stuff they're not peer approved. Their science is trash and limited in scope and like very like it's. 
Ugh, I don't know. I feel like I'm just dredging up my that days in that college seminar class. It's just the science <laughs> in that stuff is so embarrassing. It's so fucking bad. It just is awful. Anyway, but yeah, uh, you're not wrong though. I think in yes, in terms of a persuasive document, I think well, I don't know. There's also the other version of that argument though, or perspective on that. What you said because. If you go too hard at like disproving them one by one, then they might feel attacked. I feel like her version is more subtle and it's more scientific too, yeah. which I think is is crucial. I like that. I, I think she yeah. did a good job because the first three chapters will really lull you in with the science and the depth and everything. And then she mm-hmm. comes to the human element, which I think people have a harder time being told that. So, right. But yeah, that's a good point. My lost pages are simple. I think it's we've had the Obama year since then, which she acknowledges in that one update chapter, but not for long. And then there's this Paris agreement and some fallout because we left that, by the way, under Trump. And I think we rejoined it, but it doesn't it doesn't matter. It's just it's not our local, our national government has to do something. It's we can sign whatever we want to, but we have to actually make policy and implement it anyway. So I think that that would be nice to know more about our local meaning national issues, but if that's not going to get added in, then I think more equator stuff. I, part of her project seemed, it seems to be purposefully to like, look at the cold climates because they're feeling it the fastest, but I right. would have liked to see things because the, while the cold climates will notice it first, the equator climates will become unlivable first and then will yeah. cause mass migration first. So right. I think that, examining some of the countries along those lines that might be uh, perhaps most suited to political upheaval or looking at communities that, for example, have to deal with rainy seasons or drought seasons, because those places might not exist as governmental entities, places to live in like 50 years. So I feel like that a chapter about that might help. Granted, it probably wouldn't be very climate focused, though. It would basically be looking at like, here's three case studies. Here are these countries that operate currently, but, you know, let's say 90 percent of their economy went away. What would reasonably happen? And I think I've plugged it enough. But if you're curious in a question like that, then read the uh, uninhabitable earth. So (laughs) because those are where those questions get explored anyway. Final section or final segment for this pod, critical assistance. This is when we like to end the book clubs by looking outside of ourselves and looking at some broader criticism of the book and just looking to see what other people thought of it. Amanda, why don't you bring forth your critical assistance first and we can talk about it. Sure. Mine is from The Guardian and it's Mm -hmm. called Feeling the Heat by Anushka Astana. Mm -hmm. Um, And she says, Colbert presents the arguments in an utterly compelling and convincing manner, and she does not shy away from the science. She goes into great detail about what can be done. As you reach the final chapters, you are left with some hope. I think we have a shot, says one leading physicist. So um, I chose this because, yes, she does not shy away from the science, and she doesn't oversimplify the science either. And I think that she is compelling in the way that she writes. And I also think that, yes, it is overall a more optimistic tone um, Mm -hmm. in that there is still the ability to change. There's still room for us to to not just completely, you know, doom (laughs) our Mm -hmm. our species. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah, that's a that's a solid quote, too. And I think. What was the quote I wanted to pull from that one? 
convincing, compelling, no. Oh, does not shy away from the science. Yeah, I think in our book review, which we haven't recorded yet, or sorry, recommendation, which we haven't recorded yet, that'll have to be foregrounded. Because it does, yeah. but it makes the science very readable. So, yeah. It does, yes. It's very readable, and, and I'm not anywhere near being any kind of scientist. So, And I found it compelling and easy to understand. So hmm. I should tell you something. Um, the other quote that I pulled, um, she says, But when Colbert turns to the action taken by the U.S., she becomes pessimistic. I was left wanting to throw this expose at those officials who are too selfish to consider what could happen to the planet their grandchildren inherit. They, like the rest of us, should heed the advice in Colbert's remarkable book. Um, I also, like some of my notes when I was reading the, the chapters about U.S. politicians and stuff, I also would have to like put the book down and be like, are you serious? And some of my notes are just like exclamation points and frowny faces and like, what the yeah, <laughs> and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, just cause I was like, really? Uh, okay. <laughs> and one, I remember one of the politicians like quoted, um, the writer of Jurassic park as a scientist. Like that's your reason. Yeah. For not really. Yeah. <laughs> global warming he's a fiction writer dude good old michael crichton (laughs) thanks for all you do yeah (laughs) so yeah so stuff like that i also was uh frustrated so i could totally understand that um yeah yeah (laughs) looking back on it now i'm stunned that i didn't pull the quote from that bush interview with that woman i forget what her title was climate lead or some kind of committee or maybe energy secretary or something but yeah, that was the most propaganda specialist. True, tr- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So real Goebbels or whatever the fuck that Nazi's name was. I forget who who the who is the Nazi propaganda guy. It doesn't matter. Who cares? <laughs> doesn't matter his name. Um, that's fine. We can forget. History can forget him. Um, but yeah. not but not the lessons from how to avoid propaganda. Anyway, yeah, that was just such a stunning interview, and just to see it on the page, the repetition and the weird slogans and the non-answers, the evasiveness, depressing. Yeah, I think I wrote next to her the word parrot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's well said. She had like three phrases. (laughs) Yeah, not as colorful as parrots, but yes, equally annoying to talk to, I think. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. My... Critical assistance, uh, critical assistance is from Publishers Weekly, which doesn't have authors on its reviews. It's kind of, what's the one that you use a lot? Kirkus. Kirkus, Kirkus. yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like that, where it's just an entity kind of a broad recommendation entity that doesn't do review uh, published names anyway. This is from the a review of the book, and first quote is, On the burgeoning shelf of cautionary but occasionally alarmist books warning about the consequences of dramatic climate change, Colbert's calmly persuasive reporting stands out for its sobering clarity. Expanding on a three-part series for The New Yorker, Colbert, who wrote The Prophet of Love, lets facts rather than polemics tell the story. Yeah, I think this is a well-said quote, and facts rather than polemics, that is the whole project in the first half, for sure. And even the political chapters, if you want to call them that, the man chapters, don't really, they don't blame as much as they just try and present positions and what has actually been done. You know, she does talk through a couple of laws that have been attempted to be passed in the U.S. She names the people who have attempted them and their parties, which you just have to do. It's just, that's just practical journalistic writing. But it's, I think that saying not polemical is the right description. 
I like the phrase calmly persuasive because that mm-hmm. I think is is a perfect description of this. She when you talk to somebody about climate change, it tends to be uh very heated very quickly. Yeah, they sound like um, I do. And, yeah. <laughs> and and it can devolve into just arguments. But um she does maintain like this this feeling of calm throughout. It's very scientific. She offers facts and she does, you know, take apart the opposing side but she does it in a way that's not like directly like in your face about it Mm -hmm. yeah it's probably the the right tone for sure especially as you rightly quoted and noted her stated project of trying to persuade some people right other quote i pulled i only pulled two and these are publishers weekly has pretty short reviews second quote In her most pointed chapter, Colbert chides the U.S. for refusing to sign on to the Kyoto Accord. In her most upbeat chapter, Colbert singles out Burlington, Vermont, for its impressive energy-saving campaign, which ought to be a model for the rest of the nation, just as this unbiased overview is a model for writing about an urgent environmental crisis. So I think the new chapter with the wind, Island in the Wind, would overtake the Burlington one. Although I appreciated that chapter. That chapter was fine. I think it should stay and everything. I also like in the Burlington one, there was an explicit quote. And in the Island on the Wind one, now that I think about it, I'm not going to read them, but I'm just remembering them. In both sections, the people who were in those communities emphasized how much they had also failed. And they kind of talked about all the projects that did not work or that did not stick around. A crucial thing to realize because that's another classic argument is sort of hey that windmill fell down in that place see how windmills are bad and we just can't right. let broad generalizations of course there will be failures we're attempting an unheard of turnaround in, in the way that we live and in the way that we produce energy and other matters so it's just I thought those were important things to include also to show that you may try a project that doesn't fully take off or that just doesn't gain any success or doesn't earn any success or something anyway doesn't make it not worth doing and i think the so that i would update but then the ending of it an unbiased overview model for writing about this issue i mean i can't help but agree but i know you and i stylistically kind of bias in favor of the new yorker style writing um, pretty thorough reporting in a readable but thoughtful and cautious tone you know kind of a little literary voice of a sort but i i agree i think if I need to take on any long climate reading, I hope it reads like this. Yeah, me too. It was anything where it's like science heavy. I have a, you know, heave a sigh and I'm like, okay, I'll get through this eventually. Mm-hmm. But this one was just, I mean, it was, it was a breeze. I read through this yeah. really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Really well edited. You can tell it had been tightly honed and everything. It's unsurprising that the book project grew out of articles from that publication and everything. It just, yeah, it does read like a series of very ingestible articles. Yeah. And yeah, like we would say for a good short story collection too, has that kind of one a night feeling where you could easily read one of these a night before you went to bed. Don't know if you'd sleep easily or well, but <laughs> but you could do it. And it would, in terms of, you know, digestibility and everything, that seems like a good way. That was the only other quote I pulled. Yeah. Any other final thoughts on Field Notes from a Catastrophe by Elizabeth Colbert? Uh, nope, I'm good. Okay. Any message you'd like to leave to your daughter here that she can listen to five decades from now when she's, you know, battling the gas crisis of 20, <laughs> 2071 yeah. or whatever that you want to, you know, any hopeful words for her? Just uh, just do your best and um, hope and Go that. for the eyes. 
yeah. <laughs> Find a concrete bunker um. <laughs> that we have built for you. It's in the backyard. Yeah. <laughs> you I know hope where you, it is. You, I hope you're living in it now. All right. Let's any. Do you want to say anything optimistic? Because I hijacked that. Do you want to end with something positive? Um, just that she Colbert is is hopeful that things will change, and, and mm-hmm. she keeps making the point that. You know, even if it seems like we're at the point of no return, anything at this point is still helpful in the long run. Yeah, for sure. Not time to become mole people just yet. Did you ever right. see that quote? I'm going to no. go on this tangent. I feel like the people deserve to know this. You you don't know that quote? No, no, I don't. <laughs> some uh, some infamous. He's a conservative, big political donor. I forget his name. He's. One of those people who will jump into different local campaigns and pushes huge amounts of money into like local conservative candidates. One of those shadow folks <laughs> kind of like runs things but doesn't. He's not an elected official or anything. I forget his name. Anyway, he had a report drawn up for his I think it was for his nonprofit or something, and it got leaked that they he like internally had researchers develop this it basically researched this thing or this question and try and deliver a report to him, just informing him on this issue. But essentially the query at the heart of it was, okay, so climate change is going to destroy the earth. Can we live underground? And if we can, what would be like the early economic smart investments I could make to like start building an underground society or to, there's some quote came out of it, like almost literally like mole people, like it's humanity will be under the earth and how can we live sustainably like as mole people and what could be the, the opportunities there? I, I, I don't know if any of those, if you searched any of the things I just said, if it would come up, but I just remember seeing that quote and yeah, even a big sigh. So <laughs> mole people future. Uh, mole people future. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Fun times. Fun time. But you know, at least our top genius brains are looking into it. You know, we've got our future secured. Can't wait to hear about the potential Amazon investment opportunities in Moletown. That's fucking awesome. Microsoft sponsored Moletown LED lights or whatever. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I bet Amazon's got plans for a warehouse underground by now. They must, surely. Somewhere deep I'm in sure their research. Pharmaceuticals are like mm-hmm. going nuts about like creating vitamin D like oh, yeah. supplements that are it's just like the sun. <laughs> I have to imagine. Oh, yeah. I have to imagine that whatever makes those supplements work, it's probably some uh, chemical or something derived from the ocean, though. So who knows if it'll even be available? Yeah, lot- so they have to find alternative sources for I know. That. Who knows? You can't use seashells anymore. Those are going to be rare. Anyway, let's cut this off before I don't stop. <laughs> let's cut me <laughs> off, you know? For I have another. Anyway, that is our conclusion to the Field Notes from a Catastrophe book club. Thanks so much for listening to especially my ramblings. It's always appreciated. We do have other books coming up in order, so let's talk about those briefly. The next book we'll be doing, so covering it next week when you're listening to this on the pod, will be Burnt Shadows by Camilla Shamsi. The book after that, that's a novel too. Um, The next one coming up after that is also a novel called True Grit by Charles Portis, which is a Western. And then the novel after that, we're doing three novels in a row. That's we're back on the grind back on our, (laughs) I think we had enough of the real world. (laughs) It's time to, (laughs) time to return to the land of art and, you know, and I I don't know, whimsy. I was gonna say whimsy, but these novels aren't whimsical. Anyway, the third book we're doing after that is called Homegoing and it is by, is it, um, Yaa Gyasi? I think so. 
spelled last name spelled G-Y-A-S-I. So if you want to look that up. As always, if you want to find those books in advance and read ahead or keep up with us, we do appreciate it. And until next time, we'll see you between the pages. Thank you.